I'm Patrick O'Mara, and welcome to Profiles from WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers, and get to know the person behind the persona. Our guest today is Indiana University professor of music and conductor David Efron. David, welcome. Thank you, Patrick. I'm really glad to be here. And I'm so delighted that you've been able to join us today. Thank you. David, I want to know more about you to begin with. One of the things I saw that as a young person, someone asked you for advice, and you said you were not the best person to give advice because you were a bit of a rebel. Were you really a rebel as a young person? Well, it depends how you define rebel and how far that goes. Yes. I was a nonconformist. Uh, I was one who marched to my own drummer, much to the dismay of a number of people, colleagues, uh, even my parents. I, I, I still march to my own drummer, but I think I'm playing a much more intelligent tune than I did when I was young. I... Uh, have very, very strong feelings about making music. I have very strong feelings about what it is to be on this earth. And sometimes it doesn't completely conform to the norm. But I think one can say that about anybody. But you were lucky. You had musicians as parents. That is very, very lucky. I was surrounded by music. Uh, In fact, today we're going to hear a portion of the Franck Violin Sonata, which I grew up with. Uh, I... I knew a lot of the violin literature. My father was concertmaster in Cincinnati. My mother was a pianist and played in the orchestra also. And uh, the the sonata repertoire, the violin repertoire, was played constantly in our house. Um, in the wintertime, I would listen to that and to some symphony works. And in the summer, I would attend the Cincinnati Summer Opera, which at that point in Cincinnati was held outdoors at the Zoological Gardens. And I went there. The first thing I did was when I was about four years old, I went to hear La Boheme, a rehearsal. And it had a great impact on my life, uh, mostly the the drama of it. So I was inundated with music from very, very early on. And it helped me. I think if you grow up in that environment, it's um, it's a very difficult profession, but you feel at home in the profession because you're used to that. But you, you didn't want to be a conductor at the age of four. You did? Uh, but I did, yeah. <laughs> I knew I was going to be a conductor. That's what I wanted to do. I, I studied the violin. And after six years or so, I started uh, on the piano and became somewhat accomplished at it. But I always knew I wanted to conduct opera. That's what I wanted to do. From that early age? From that early age, yeah. And, and of course, you studied as a young person at Brevard. I did. And, and, and I know you did piano there, right? I did. And, uh, piano and baseball. Yeah. That's what I did. <laughs> piano and baseball. That's <laughs> yeah. In fact, I, I missed a concert that I was supposed to be in because I was also on the championship baseball team, and there was a game during the concert, and I opted to play the game and never showed up at the concert, which, which uh, you know, was not very disciplined, but it gives you an idea of the rebel, as you, comes as you referred to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> David, you did piano and violin. That's correct. And conducting then reaches an important point in your life a little later when you get a Fulbright. Correct. Tell us about what happened with that. 
Well, well, actually, it started a little before the Fulbright because I got my master's from this illustrious music school, Indiana University. And while I was here, although I majored in piano with Sidney Foster, I um, worked a lot in the opera department. And at that time, we used to go to Indianapolis on a Friday afternoon and play a matinee in the schools of whatever opera we were doing. And then in the evening, we'd have another performance. And and uh, my t- conducting teacher, uh, Professor Kozma, gave me the opportunity a couple times to conduct the opera. Uh, in fact, the first opera I ever conducted, it was an abridged version, but it was uh, it was Verdi's Don Carlo, which is really a, it's a tough one. an opera to start. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, some, sometimes you have a great advantage if you haven't done something because you don't know how difficult it is. <laughs> but then you go to Cologne, right? Then I went to Cologne, and I went as a Fulbright student to Cologne, but... Early on in that uh, uh, part of my life, after about two or three months, there was a vacancy at the at the opera house, and I was very uh, blessed that my teacher sent me there to be a rehearsal pianist and to and to play uh, for Wolfgang Savalich, and they were doing a, a ring. Wagner Ring at that time. So I learned that repertoire, and that was fortuitous. That was a very special, special thing to happen. Of course, Wagner was uh, in the right place. You were in Germany at an interesting time, and Wolfgang Swalisch was a good person to work with. A great person to work with, yeah. And from there, it's what, to the New York City? Well, from there, I went. I got a Rockefeller grant. At the time, they had those, and I also got a position... Um, at the New York City Opera. So I went back to the States and um, started working at the New York City Opera, and I worked myself up. I started as a rehearsal pianist, and eventually I was asked to be chorus master. And when I became chorus master, I got to conduct uh, performances, and then eventually I only conducted performances and came back as a guest for almost 18 years. And in the middle of this, you also accompanied George London... I did. Placido Domingo and Cheryl Milnes. I did. Among others, yes, I did. Um, because uh, my my key to the opera house was that I was a decent pianist, plus I knew a lot of the opera repertoire already. And and so I worked with those people. As uh, Placido and Cheryl were also to City Opera at that time. And I got to know them, and and they asked me to play some concerts for them, which was a lot of fun. And, and George London, that came from uh, Columbia Artists, they used to have in this country Columbia concerts where, where artists would go into small towns, large towns, and they needed uh, somebody to play for George London and sent me over to audition for him. It was a very short audition, and I got the job, and I accompanied him a number of times. In uh, first concerts we did were in Florida. And you've also, of course, done some interesting discs. I noticed you had a special relationship with Benita Valente. That's that's true. It was an uh, exciting thing to look at as I yeah, was. Yeah, I, I learned a lot from Benita. Yes. And uh, tell us about her. Uh, well, she's a, a unique human being. She's a fabulous musician and an incredibly natural musician. She's not an intellect as far as making music, but she's an emotional person who feels free enough. She str- uh, strives to do uh, pr- present 
each uh, piece she does in a very free way, and it can be very different each time she does it. That's something that we all strive for, but to her it comes naturally, and that was a special for me. Um, and um, I p- played many, many concerts for her over a 10-year period, and it was incredibly interesting because each concert was different. It was the same repertoire often, but on Monday night she sang it one way, and on Tuesday night she sang it another way. And I learned that uh, through her that the, if you're that free as a musician, it's a really good thing to, to strive for. And also... I learned that uh, uh, you can do things many different ways, and they're they're acceptable and they make sense. Uh, I would I just uh, would like to say that once I heard a Tchaikovsky symphony with George Schulte conducting, and I knew the symphony was the fourth symphony. I knew it very well, and his interpretation was like nothing I had ever heard before, or would even consider for myself doing but when I as I walked out of the hall I felt that that was the only way to do the symphony the way he did it and that is a mark of a great artist it's interesting that you mentioned this I read something about you uh oh and it's <laughs> a, a, it's Richard Strauss's till Eulenspiegel mm-hmm. and you said what I said about you Efron has conducted each of these works throughout his career but he studies them as if he never knew the piece when he prepares for it. Is that an accurate statement? Um, to go back to yeah, square one? I think I think uh, that's not uncommon for people to do because obviously uh, music, the, the relationship to music changes throughout your life, and it has a lot of correlation between how, what what is going on in your life and your own development so that it would be impossible for me to conduct Till Eulenspiegel today as I did 30 years ago. Therefore, I love the study process. I should tell you that. Some people don't like to study as much as I do, but I, I, I obviously like to perform a lot too. But the study process is so interesting because the great works always offer something to you and you can study it for your whole life and always find something new. So I think it's my obligation on many levels to go back to the piece as if you had never done it before and it makes it much more interesting and it it helps you as a performer. What is it that happens? Is it you that are that you are growing and expanding your understanding of life? Or is it you are growing as a musician and understanding the music? Or is it both? Yeah, I was just about to say it's both. It's definitely both. Uh, One grows as a person and one learns more about music and one learns more about individual pieces the more that you conduct them or perform them. I think that uh, it's important to know that, for example, if you're very sad, the performance will come out differently than it will if you're giddy or if you're incredibly happy on a certain day. And you have to just let it go. And that was what was so great about Benita. She could have different interpretations based upon what was going on in her life in that day or in that moment or in that year. And to be a part of that was a tremendous... uh, 
opportunity to grow myself as a person and as an artist. Let me take this to another level. You've got an incredible memory. Well, thank you. I've watched you over the years. Thank you. The number of times that I've seen you with a score at an opera is not always there. No, that's true. And conducting symphonies. I mean, I've been told that you have the ability to conduct over 100 operas. Well, that's true. I've been fortunate that I've been in, had opportunities to learn a hundred operas and more than a hundred at yeah. this point. And uh, yeah, I do have a, a very large repertoire. Also, symphonically, I have a large repertoire. But all of this stems actually from my time at IU, because one thing Professor Kozma insisted on and pounded into us every day was the importance of being totally prepared. And totally prepared to him meant basically that you didn't need the music anymore because it was all uh, in your head. You know, one of your colleagues, interesting opera singer, who um, once told me, Virginia Zayani. Yeah. I said, I don't have a great memory, Virginia. And she said, well, you know, as an opera singer, when I walk on the stage and I hear the first bar of music, the role unfolds. Uh-huh. Would you agree with that with the, as a conductor? Does, does the music jog the memory? Does it open up the interpretation? Or is it that well, you've prepared so well? I think it's the latter because I think that you can't be thinking while you're conducting where you are in the score or what comes next or mm-hmm. is this in 3-4 th- or 4-4. Four, four. You just – it has to become incredibly natural and just then things begin to flow. And if you haven't gone through that study process, that isn't going to happen. You know, you've conducted in many parts of the world, Israel, United States, parts of Europe, Korea – is it the same experience in each of these sites or is there something different with the audience, with the expectation when you conduct in Korea, for example, versus when you conduct in Israel? It is different. The audiences are different. The cultures are different. Um, the musicians in the orchestra are uh, – there are certain basic things about musicians that are alike, but the approach to music is is somewhat somewhat different in each of the countries. The audiences in Asia are – first of all, there's a lot of young people in the audiences in Asia, which you don't see so much in this country. Um, I think uh, classical music is a much more important part of their culture. And they are so enthusiastic, it's almost like going to a sporting event. That's a difference that I notice in the United States and Asia. And in Europe, um, it's it's always been part of their culture. And I did, I've done a lot of conducting in Germany. They really can relate to the music. They, they know more probably about the pieces than, than some people in other countries. But I would hope that in in the future, this country would be able to educate their young through through schools, through mm-hmm. uh, going to concerts a lot, um, so that we we can have that environment. And I think some of it used to be that way, but nowadays uh, people are interested much more in in other aspects of life. David, this is a time for a little break. Okay. 
you mentioned earlier an interesting piece, the César Franck violin sonata. Yeah. Tell me why you've chosen this. Well, I, I, as I said before, I grew up in a musician's home. My father was a violinist and my mother was a pianist. And um, when you hear that piece already when you're two or three years old and hear it constantly your whole life, I mean, it becomes a part of your soul. And I've played it in concerts with cellists and violinists. And it is a piece that is, for me, so heartfelt in every movement that it's just incredibly meaningful to me. This is Profiles, and our guest today is David Efron, Distinguished Outstanding Conductor. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. David, we've been talking about you, but now I'd like to talk about young musicians for a while. When I think of your career, a long career, your career at IU where you've conducted so many operas, I think one of the early ones you did here was in the early 90s when you came back on a visit before taking on a full-time position. Yeah, I think it was Dialogue of the Carmelites. Uh, yeah. And all the way through to contemporary performances that we've watched as recently as a few months ago. A lot of students, a lot of young people on the stage in terms of symphony orchestras that you've conducted. Let's talk a bit about these students. What's a good student? What's a good musician in your mind? Who is a good musician? Anybody who cannot live one day without music, usually as a good musician also. Yeah. Uh, I tell my students this profession is very difficult and uh, it's constant work. You have to sacrifice a lot. Um, and I think that if I tell them that if, if they can live one day without it, perhaps they would be happier doing something else. But if, you, if you're like I am and can't live without it, then you've got to do it. And and I think that our job, you, you know, I, I came from a musical background, as you said, but a lot of the students come from the, all kinds of backgrounds, and some have never heard a symphony uh, until they were teenagers, um, whereas for me, hearing a symphony is second nature. So I think my job is to instill in them show them how much I love music and instill in them that quality 
And I think then there are other people who are just natural musicians, and they were born that way. It's relatively simple for them to make music. But the hundreds of students you've worked with in all of these orchestras, they have something, but they probably need something more than they need talent, of course, of some sort. They need discipline, I assume. They need discipline, yeah, and they need two kinds of discipline. They need the kind of discipline that you get by focusing on the music, that kind of discipline. And the other kind of discipline is an I call orchestral discipline. There's a certain certain things that you do in an orchestra that you don't do when you're playing a solo. And the the use of the bow is very different with the strings. The the uh, awareness of balance and blending with other instruments is very important. So so that's part of what I do. I I inst- try to instill that in all my students. You know, I love the students. I I have I, know. I I don't know what that's all about exactly, but some of my students that I many of them who are now in their 50s and playing in major orchestras, they call me up all the time just to talk about music and yeah. how you're doing and all of that. And that that's a that's a wonderful feeling. It's a there's a camaraderie in the theater and there's a camaraderie with musicians that is hard to compare to anything else. It's a very close knit group. Tell me, it must be tough for a young soloist to stand on a stage alone. And it's a tough world. I mean, somewhere you've said there are probably about 200 really outstanding soloists mm-hmm. around the world, a group. Mm-hmm. And probably some of them are very critical of each other. Well, yes. You've got to have a thick skin, don't you, if you're a soloist? Well, you have to be a thick skin if you're in this profession, no matter what you <laughs> As do. As a conductor, you have to have um, a thick skin. Uh, it's, it's, it's incredibly competitive. Yeah. But there's good competition and then there's unfriendly competition. And I, I try to uh, agree things should be competitive, but yeah. in, there's a certain way of doing it that's much nicer. What about rejection? You have to believe in yourself and you do have to have a strong backbone. And and you have to love it enough so that you're not completely destroyed by something that doesn't happen the way you want it to and you keep plowing ahead. And that happens throughout your life. David, we've been talking about young people. How do they find jobs? Everyone asks that question. What happens? What, what is it? It's networking. It's your reference. But what else is it? How do they move to an orchestra? How do uh, they move luck. to... Luck? It's, it's luck. I mean, it is, as you said quite correctly, it's networking. Networking is a terribly important element of this profession now, much more than it was when I was uh, uh, in my 20s. It's really uh, the crux of getting a job is networking who you know and and uh, who you can present yourself to. Of course, you have to always be prepared and you have to be at a high level in what you do. But then there comes the element of luck and and with without that it's not a complete package are there alternative careers for people well, who graduate sure i mean there are alternative uh, it's it's a variation of performing uh, there's a great need for people uh to be in arts management managers of of, of symphonies managers of individual people 
Uh, and that's a very good thing to do if you love music, but it's just uh, becomes apparent that you, you're not going to be one of the 200 who are going to be able to perform. There, there is a way out where you can be around it, and, and we need really good people who understand musicians if they're going to work with musicians. Mm-hmm. Let's move to opera. Okay. Favorite subject of mine. It's a wonderful list of operas. I've just you've done everything from Bohem, Puccini, La Rondine, yeah. Ned Roram's Our Town, right, Guno, Ballad of Baby Doe, yeah. Verdi, Offenbach, and I can go on and on. Let's talk about a few of them. Contemporary. Our Town, Ned Roram. Did he come here when you were working on he it? He did come here, yeah, at the very end. He he wasn't part of the process in that he wasn't here to guide us, but he came in the last, last rehearsal and the performances. Was it an interesting experience to have the composer there? It's always an interesting experience to have the composer. Um, How did he respond? Uh, well, I think like many composers... Um, <laughs> there are two types of composers as it has been in my experience. The first type doesn't say much at all and allows you to be creative. The other type has very definite ideas about how they want something done and and you start from that point and then you compromise if there's a if there's an issue. Uh, Ned Roram didn't didn't say very much actually. Uh-huh. So I took that to mean he was pleased with it. Ballad of Baby Doe. Yeah, that's that an old, goes back to city opera. To city opera. Yeah, that's an old city opera thing with Beverly Sills and, and, and Martha Lipton at some point. And Martha Lipton and Walter Castle. Yes, very famous uh, cast. Um, and I've done it a number of times in Central City, Colorado, and mm-hmm. in New York, and here. It's an interesting opera because it's a phenomenal stage piece, in my opinion. The orchestration is quite thin. I, I, it would not be the right thing to do, but I would love to add a few more instruments or reorchestrate mm-hmm. it in, in, in some way. But the, the, it's a wonderful story, and yeah. that's the strength of it. And it gets to the American experience. Absolutely, yeah. In many ways. What about conducting Verdi? That's probably my favorite. I would have guessed that. In, in fact, I'm going to have the opportunity to conduct the Verdi Requiem yes. here at IU next year. Um, I've done it, but never at IU. Um, I'm looking forward to that. I, there's something, you know, I think every every performer will say the same thing. There are certain composers that you embrace and the composer becomes a part of you. And that's what I feel about Verity. More, more, more so than Puccini, perhaps. Yes, I would say so. And I think yeah. it has to do with my childhood going to those operas in Cincinnati yeah. where they did a lot of Verdi. And those are the first operas I heard. Well, yeah. Bo- Bohème was the first. But after that, it was a lot of Verdi. It's the intensity of the music, the evocativeness of it's the music. It's the intensity of the music, and it's the knowledge of knowing what a sensitive and uh, a man Verdi was and what a difficult life he had. He's mm-hmm. a very in some ways a very sad figure and that sadness and the sensitivity come through in his music for me. Yeah. Is it difficult to conduct Verdi? It's difficult to conduct everything. I, I haven't found a piece that was easy yet. Yeah. They, they, everything is, is it's relative of course. Um, I have so much fun conducting that I 
don't often focus on if it's difficult. Everything yeah. has to be worked out. How do you work with a director and with a scenic designer? Shall we start with a director? Well, that's, uh, you know, in, in my time, things have changed in the opera house to the extent that nowadays the director is the chief of the rehearsal. The director guides every rehearsal. used to be that the conductor did everything, and the director sort of worked in there too. But I have the luxury, I would say, to work with directors if I want to and others I don't have to if I don't want to. I appreciate a director who understands the music as much as they understand the um, action. And I really appreciate a director who brings reality and life to every character and and is able to um, make individuals out of every character. Something that that my colleague Vince uh, Leota is very, very good at. That's why I like to work with him. With Vince, Yeah. yeah. Scenic designer. I, uh, the conductor doesn't work so much with the scenic designer, um, only in terms of is this going to work for the singers yeah. on that set yeah. or are they going to be behind a post all the time or yeah. 10 feet up? You know, th- that's the only way you get involved. But but the director sees to that also. What's your role vis-a-vis the soloists in an opera? I know everyone thinks – singers always tell me this is a great conductor – he understands me. He nurtures me. He yeah. leads me. Do you agree with that? I, I do. I, I think I can put it into one sentence that my job as a, as a conductor in the pit is to allow the uh, singers to feel like they have the greatest of freedom, but at the same time, make sure that you're getting control of it yourself, Uh, allowing them to feel that they're in control when actually you're in control. I mean, I don't know if you can understand that, but that's what I think. I don't try to control the singers, but in a very subtle way, I am controlling them. It's interesting. And I, but they, uh, most of the singers I've worked with say, say they feel very free with me, which is what I want them to free. And they feel at ease. I think so. Yeah, that's what I've been told. I want to talk about this remarkable production of De Rosenkavalier. Yeah, and it was remarkable. It was remarkable because a lot of people didn't think we could even pull it off. And frankly, well, I have great faith in my colleagues, and I believe in them and trust in them, so I, I never thought that we couldn't do it. But I think it was a, a a huge victory because I I can say without hesitation that there's no other a- academic institution in the world that could put this opera on and do it at the level that we did it. And the other thing was there was a a camaraderie with everybody because everybody was so excited about it. The orchestra put in a lot of extra time voluntarily and the singers were prepared at the first rehearsal, basically, which doesn't always happen because they have so much to do with the schoolwork and everything else that's on their plate. It showed me, at least, that this uh, university is capable of, of anything and that we, in my opinion, we should venture out and be a little more daring more often than we are. Why is it so difficult? The music's difficult. 
Well, the uh, yeah, the, car- uh, the music is is very difficult. There are no stops in it. No. It just goes from beginning to end. You don't have any respite from from anything, and also the characterizations are very difficult. It's a it's a very difficult acting show, and it's a very difficult singing show, and it's a very difficult coordination show between the mm-hmm. pit and the stage, and. It's the perfect opera because it it has everything in it that an opera should have, and th- that's why it's also difficult. Some operas, like in Verdi, if you can really sing well, it's great. If you can act, it's better, but it's not the most important thing. In this opera, everything is important, and um, that's what that's the difficulty of this opera. You rehearsed. Probably more than you've done for other operas. Yeah, we started, the orchestra started in November. We actually gave up a concert in December so that we could rehearse. And so that by January, after the Christmas break, we actually were pretty much uh, along the road. And the singers also rehearsed already in November. Tell me, the audiences in Bloomington and in other parts of the country, audiences might like to hear the standard works. They might enjoy Bohème perhaps more than an experimental modern opera. How do we handle that? I mean, after all, an opera house has to sell tickets. Yeah, well, I, that's that's a question that nobody really has the, no. the answer to. There are ideas, but, I mean, I think you have to have a mixed diet of things. You have to present the things that are going to sell tickets. On the other hand, you don't forward the art form unless you do something new and something unusual. And this is a university. And this is a university. It's the perfect it's place school. and the right place to do something. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, this might be time for a little break. Again? We've just been talking about Rosen Cavalier. Okay. What would you like to hear? Well, you know, it, you, one could pick any part of Rosen Cavalier, and it's, it's it's special. But I think that the end of the opera, the trio at the end of the opera, is a very very special time. This is Profiles, and our guest today is conductor David Efron. David, we've been talking about opera. Let's talk about the orchestral side for a little bit, if we may. You are going to do the Verdi Requiem this coming year. Tell us more about your perception of this, your view of this, your ideas for it. How are you thinking about preparing for this? Well, it's one of my favorite pieces. And uh, 
I've done it many, many times. It's a great opera, a great oratorio, and a great symphonic work. I think it's it's certainly the culmination of Verdi's uh, growth. And um, you have to have very good singers, an excellent chorus, very good orchestra players. Then it's possible to do a very moving performance. It is a very moving and emotional piece. And we have the capacity for it. Oh, absolutely. At, at IU. Absolutely. So it'll be very exciting to do absolutely. this. Absolutely. I'm also interested sometimes in works where you have an opera and an orchestral side to uh, Peter Grimes as an example. Uh-huh. Discuss with me a little the distinction between Peter Grimes as an opera and then there's a wonderful orchestral Peter Grimes that is separate from the opera. Those four or five pieces. Yes. That, yeah, well, that, that comes from the opera that because comes, his yeah. interludes are so yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, they're great pieces because they're so depictive of the sea. You can feel the waves, actually. It's, it's very special. And, the, and they stand on their own. And they stand on their own. And <clears throat> that obviously is a mark of a great composition. Um, the, uh, the opera itself is, you know, I don't know what the real answer is, but you, I do know that there are certain works in the symphonic world and the opera world where the players get incredibly excited about playing, unusually so. And I guess I would say that's what makes... Them, when, when that happens, you know you're in the midst of a great piece of music. What about the orchestras at IU? We have six orchestras in the music school. You work mainly with one of them or two of them, right? Well, I I, I have been working mainly with the Philharmonic, with the Philharmonic. Orchestra, but I've also had... Concerts with all of them. Yeah, tell so. me about the orchestras. I think the audience might be interested to know. Well, I more. think that um, it's amazing how one institution can service so many orchestras, and and they're capable of all sounding quite good in concert. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we have an audition system that we put uh, uh, for the winds that it's been there a long time but we've only put it in place for the strings for the last three or four years where everybody auditions and the seating is done by what happens at the auditions and the auditions uh, serve two purposes they uh, show us um, what each student can do orchestrally and they also prepare them which is more important, they prepare them for the profession because we do the auditions exactly like the profession does behind a screen. And then we have uh, maybe 14 finalists out of 130 violinists and they come back and they play not behind the screen. And and those people have an opportunity to sit in the front of the section as as leaders of the section. So, so it's a blind audition in some ways. It's a blind audition, yeah. And everybody plays the same thing. Yeah. And and uh, it's sent out to them. They know what, the, what they're going to play before they get there. The level of the orchestra is to some extent dependent upon who's conducting uh, because – and it's – I don't mean bad or good conducting. I, I think we have very good conductors here. But with, with young people, it's very important that there's a relationship personality-wise because that somehow is very, very inspirational. Professional orchestras have that to a certain extent, but the professional orchestras are going to play at a certain level anyhow because they're being paid to do that. The students can really tune out <laughs> it's very easily. And 
they don't have the skills that a professional does that they can rise above that feeling. So, mm-hmm. so I found that in the good sense, it's like a cheerleader. To a, that's part of part of the job of the conductor of an academic orchestra, and um, I think that that's really really important. And and to keep things moving very quickly. That I don't I don't like to uh, stop a lot and tell stories and things like that. So it seems seems to work. The people seem very committed. You've told me you love conducting Verdi. I do. What about orchestras? What composers well, I, do you like? Mahler. Mahler, which is what I would favorite? say Mahler, yeah. yeah. I, I had the opportunity to conduct all the symphonies except the Mahler Eighth, which I hope to conduct sometime. Yeah, I came to conducting symphony quite late because I only conducted opera basically till I was my late 20s, early 30s. And so I've had to catch up this fantastic literature. And and it's it's nice in a way that you don't have the responsibility of everything that goes on in the stage once in a while to just be able to conduct an orchestra without all the other things that could go on in a theater. I found a provocative piece about what do musicians expect from a conductor. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a bit about these. First of all, they say the relationship between the conductor and the orchestra is complex. We know that. Mm-hmm. Then one of the great crimes of a conductor is not to be prepared. That's and right. Orchestras can let a fine conductor know if they're not happy with Absolutely. the lack of preparation. Would Absolutely. you agree? Uh, completely. Yeah. And they will let you know. How would they do it? Some orchestras have players who just talk back to the conductor oh, really? and, and say, you know, how anything's po- anything's possible. It's much more democratic than it used to be in well, the early part of the century. The, the article says they can be uncooperative and disrespectful they to the conductor. They can be disrespectful. They can be uncooperative. Yeah. Uh, but uh, often it's much more subtle, though, the way they behave. But it's pretty obvious and and you know being a conductor you also have to be a psychologist because you have to as much as you might plan how to talk to the orchestra or what you're going to say you may get up there and within 2 minutes you realize this isn't going to work with this orchestra so you have to immediately and spontaneously change your approach you gave me an inkling of this other comment a moment ago yeah. says musicians are not impressed by flowery talk from the conductor at rehearsals and attempts to impress them. They want a conductor who knows exactly what he wants and can say it with as few words as possible. I think generally that that is very true. But I will say something that if you ask any orchestra individually, each each person in the orchestra, what they think of a, any conductor who who was just conducting their rehearsal – you won't get a definitive answer. You'll get many different answers. Some people will think it's great. Some people will think it's really bad. Uh, it's a gamut of things. I mean, there are very few conductors where everybody would be agreed that they are good, and there are very few that where they would all agree that the conductor was bad. Um, but this is the era of superstars. I'm thinking of uh, Gustavo Didon. Yeah, Didon, young, superstars, young very, superstars. Very, very young people in their 20s. And that's probably not a bad thing. No, it's not a bad thing because, uh, for one thing, those people are attracting audiences, mm-hmm. and that's a very, very good thing. We need that now. I can think of very few women conductors. 
Well, there's more and more women conductors. Uh, Fifty years ago, there weren't any, but now the, the, I I think it probably is harder for a woman to break into this profession, but it's certainly not impossible. There's uh, a number of very uh, good and uh, busy conduct women conductors. We are drawing almost to the end of our interview. I've got a few other comments that I'd like you to pursue, if you okay. would. Okay. First about you and then a general question. Okay. Have you ever had a disaster? Well, I did have one disaster, but it wasn't my fault. I didn't do it. Uh, I had a tenor in the quartet in Rigoletto uh, take a left turn when we were all taking a right turn. (laughs) And the end result was that the famous quartet, which everybody in the audience knew, uh, basically fell apart (laughs) in a performance. And uh, what I remember, uh, I I must say I'm quite calm in times like that. I was very calm, but I remember there was a look of horror on the three other people on the stage at that point. They were just horror-stricken. You couldn't get out of it. There was nothing you could do. This guy was just going on his own. That was terrible. It was embarrassing, (laughs) but it it, it happens. Clearly, though, you enjoy conducting under all circumstances. It's so apparent. I love it. I love music. (laughs) And using that as a bridge... Let's talk about the future of classical music. I'm always impressed on the Bloomington campus at IU to see young people at the performances of the opera, at the symphony orchestra, at recitals. They're there. They're enthusiastic. And even at times when there are high school students here, mm-hmm. I'm amazed. They come in, as you said earlier, as if it's at a ball game. Mm-hmm. But is that true nationally? Probably not. I mean, we have a very special environment here, a special musical and intellectual environment that is not in every place. I think that even more students, especially in in the winter, should come to these concerts, um, Mm -hmm. to all concerts. I mean, it's the best way you can learn, actually. I tell my class you can learn much more by watching a conductor rehearse and perform then I can teach you in a class. Yeah. And, and and I think we have a, a wealth of opportunity here to see some very experienced, very gifted uh, pe- people perform on, on a daily basis. Yes, there are students who go to concerts, but I don't – I frankly don't think there are enough of them. What about nationally? Um, well, there, are we losing a lot of young people? We never gained them. This generation is – as I alluded to before, there are other things that interest them more. And I think it's if anybody ever finds out a solution to bring people back into the concert hall, they'll, they'll reap tremendous benefits. Everybody knows there's an issue and nobody seems to be able to solve it. And It's not just the question of cost, is it, of tickets and things? Not at all. Or of unions. It's much deeper than that. It goes much deeper than that. It's the educational, something to do with the the way education is in this country. Well, you've been a great educator and you've affected thousands of lives. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with conductor and professor of music, David Efron. Thank you, David, for being with us. As we go out... You mentioned Mahler earlier. What would you like to hear? Oh, I love Mahler, and especially I love the Second Symphony, the Resurrection, the Resurrection. Symphony. Is there a special recording? Do you, do we perhaps have one of yours? I, I do. Uh, I think we're going to hear 
the very ending of the piece, very powerful ending. And this is from a performance in 2001 that we did here at, in Bloomington. I don't. It hasn't been performed here since, I don't believe. But uh, and, and you were conducting. And I was conducting, yeah. Well, we look forward to hearing that. Thank you. This is Patrick O'Mara for Profiles, and thank you for listening. The program you just heard was recorded in June of 2012. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.